Um, our next speaker um, is Dr. Marshall Welch. He has attended medical school at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. He did his uh, residency in internal medicine at the University of Utah, a fellowship in allergy and clinical immunology at National Jewish Medical and Research Center, and the University of Colorado in Denver, and also a residency in dermatology at the University of Washington. He is clinical associate professor of medicine in the division of dermatology, University of Washington School of Medicine, and is director of the contact dermatitis clinic which is based at Harborview Medical Center. Please welcome Dr. Welch. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I was unaware of your organization prior to getting this invitation, but uh, how, how many of you do patch testing and contact dermatitis? Oh, good, yeah, so, um, so I'm just gonna share with you uh, there we go, yeah. Um, so I want to share with you uh, kind of what I do and uh, a little, uh, some pearls I picked up along the years. I've been doing this about 18 years now um, and have uh, learned a lot of interesting things from my patients and uh, every, uh, every new patient is uh, something new. As, uh, any of you probably uh, are aware. Um, those of you who don't do patch testing maybe, uh, or contact dermatitis, maybe this will help you uh, get inspired to do it or, or see how you might fit into the practice uh, where, you, uh, where you work and uh, be able to be a resource person or uh, uh, provide some uh, continuity for some of the patients and so on. So. Uh, so what do, what do we do when someone comes in like this uh, with a rash on their, on their hands, and, uh, which is usually where it is? Uh, and what I'll do today is go through some definitions first and then sort of how we uh, approach patients with suspected contact dermatitis. And I will also, a lot of these cases are occupational. Um, and so we will touch on a lot of the high-risk groups and occupational uh, skin diseases and uh, then uh, talk about patch testing and then how you sort of put it all together, uh, how you treat uh, contact dermatitis, and then finally a lot of interesting case examples that I've seen over the years. First of all, the types of contact dermatitis, uh, irritant and allergic, as many of you are aware, Overall, they're thought to make up, irritant is thought to make up about 80% of the cases overall, allergic 20%. Um, in my practice, I see more alert, a higher percentage of allergic than this, I would guess probably 40%, 50% even, since I largely see referral patients. Irritant contact dermatitis, nonspecific, meaning there's no specific immune response due to, and it's due to an irritant. Uh, the inflammation occurs from a direct uh, cytotoxic effect. Um, there's some act activation of some, the um, innate immune system in the skin. Uh, anyone can get uh, irritant contact dermatitis if you have a sufficiently high concentration of the irritant. 
you don't have to have been exposed to the irritant previously. The onset can occur within minutes to hours. And one of the things I'll emphasize um, is the time course of these events, and that's and that's sometimes helpful in in helping tease out uh, what what's going on with a particular patient. When does it start? When after exposure did it start? Was it minutes, hours, days, and so on? A few examples: uh, causes of irritant contact dermatitis: acids, alkalis, enzymes, oxidants, surfactants such as soaps solvents and fuels. And this is an example of, uh, that I will uh, come back to uh, during this talk. This was a machinist that I worked up when I, near the time I first started. Um, worked in aerospace and was around uh, water-based cutting fluids a lot. And uh, we patch tested him extensively and all of his patch tests were negative. He was atopic as well and had uh, just had this uh, irritant hand dermatitis. Allergic contact dermatitis, on the other hand, is a specific immune response. Uh, the antigen-presenting cell is in the Langerhans cell. Um, the chemical, uh, which is also called a, a hapten, and I think the term hapten is being used more, more and more uh, lately. Um, allergen or antigen, and I tend to use these terms interchangeably. It's usually low molecular weight and lipid soluble. Uh, and it, this occurs in individuals who have previously been sensitized to the allergen. And it becomes evident one to three days after exposure. Some patients will tell you they started feeling funny maybe uh, the same day of it, uh, when they've been re-exposed. These are some uh, cartoons out of Bologna's book um, that you can refer to uh, if you have a copy of that book. Um, but you, first of all, the induction sensitization phase, you have binding of the antigen or hapten to proteins in the skin, and then this, create, this is a neoantigen or new an, an antigen that the body recognizes as foreign, and then um, the uh, Langerhans cells take this up, process it, present it to T cells who uh, along the way migrate to regional lymph nodes, proliferate, and then um, re-enter the circulation and go back to the skin. And they wait uh, to, to uh, and are there to defend against this uh, antigen if it uh, happens to uh, occur, if exposure happens to occur again. And this propagation uh, becomes important in the, in, as far as autoeximitization or when, when allergic contact dermatitis becomes severe and starts spreading to other parts of the body, and many of you have probably seen this and treated it. And then the elicitation phase, the, uh, once uh, a person is allergic, then the uh, hapten or antigen uh, is and are re-exposed, then this is taken up by Langerhans cells, uh, and there are other cells in the skin uh, as well. There's uh, some mediator release presented to T cells again, then additional uh, inflammatory cells get recruited from the circulation, and 
the, uh, the t some patients will tell you they started feeling funny uh, after a big exposure. They started feeling funny or funny uh, later that day, uh, you know, eight hours or so or later, and then really the next day it started up and really got rip-roaring and, and really peaks in two to three days. And as many of you know, can go on for sometimes weeks if, if untreated causes biocides, dyes, fragrances, medicaments, metals, plants, preservatives, resins, rubber chemicals, topical vehicles. We'll go through a lot of examples of these today. It's confirmed by patch testing, which we'll also go over today. Uh, this is a good example that I like to show. Uh, if you happen to go camping in the Cascades uh, um, after your stay here, Please make sure to take uh, plenty of toilet paper with you. This, uh, this guy went camping, and I think I put in your syllabus uh, in, uh, that uh, he ran out of toilet paper and uh, used this at, uh, used an unknown leaf as a substitute late at night and, and uh, came, saw us a few days later, absolutely miserable, sleep deprived, and this had spread all over the place. Well, the dermatology residents speculated that he's probably right-handed. Uh, you can, I think that's uh, very observant on his part. Um, and we'll come back and talk about him later when we uh, talk about treatment, but this is just probably the, the prototype uh, example of allergic contact dermatitis. Um, now a little bit about how we approach someone who uh, patient or worker, um, someone sent uh, who might have allergic contact dermatitis, some of the things we, kind of how you approach them, and basically it's just being thorough, doing the basic things, and that a lot of times the, the diagnosis drops in your lap. We'll also go over uh, patch testing, and then finally, how do you put this together, and there's there's the medical side in a case of occupational skin disease, or the medical side uh, as far as diagnosis, which is what most of us deal with most of the time. And then there's also the legal side, occupational causation. And I think one of the, the important points to make is if you don't want to get involved in all the legal stuff, you, just, you can just say, I don't know uh, whether it's legally uh, the answer to your question, um, and it's uh, as uh, medical uh, specialists, it's sometimes hard for us to do that. We're expected to know everything. We go to school being grilled about this and that our entire, through our training, and then uh, it, it takes a little bit of a, some uh, a change in how you think uh, when that, that if you're asked a question by a lawyer or an insurance company, uh, you, you can and it's a legal question. You can just say, "I don't have an opinion. I don't know." Uh, and it's uh, and I really uh, sometimes have to to uh, catch myself and and say, you know, so you don't have to know this, and you can just say, "I don't know," or "I don't have an opinion," and you don't have to have an opinion. So, and that's was one of the things that was taught to me by one of the risk management people where I work. Uh, as far as the legal side of it, if you don't know, you just say you don't know, and uh, you won't be penalized for that. And even if you think that you should know, you, if you don't know what the legally whether it uh, 
is caused by their occupation, you, you just say you don't know. History and physical, and this is, uh, this is one sample form that you go through. Uh, this, is, this is from uh, Adam's occupational skin disease. That's a, the reason I included it is because it's only two pages long, so I could fit it in this slide. But there are other uh, examples uh, in uh, uh, books uh, on contact dermatitis. I think some of those are in your references. You want to schedule adequate time to do this. I schedule, I, I tell the dermatology residents in my clinic, just talking, doing the history, I say, try to do at least 20 minutes. And I have now gotten in the habit of, I confiscate the resident's uh, pager when they, or, or cell phone when they go in to talk to the patient. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I say, give me that, uh, and I will answer it. I want you to have some uninterrupted time with this patient and go through these questions with them. And on the other hand, some of these people will talk all, all morning if you let them, so you, you have to sort of, sort of direct the conversation and, and uh, uh, assume some control over the situation as well. Or, uh, if you don't have adequate time at, uh, when they come in, if they come in during your routine 15-minute uh, appointment slot and you need more time, then make a, uh, do some practical things, whatever you think is appropriate, and then bring them back uh, some other time where you can go over things in more detail. And I do that in general dermatology clinic uh, as well. A lot of people ask, well, what do you do? And you know, one of these people come into the general derm clinic and where you're, you have a patient every 15, 20 minutes, and you just do some things to kind of get it under control and then put it off and, and come back and do it more thoroughly later if it needs to be done. So a little bit about history and exam, and, and if you do much of this, you start becoming a connoisseur of hand dermatitis and the different variants of it. You want to look at where it is on the hands, and uh, is it on the fingertips, the dorsal aspects of the fingers, the, the nail folds, the palms, sides of the fingers. Uh, is, that, is the skin um, hyperkeratotic, fissured, crusted, and so on? And we'll go over some, some examples of this. This is finger, and the first one is, this involves the fingertips, and this patient had uh, um, involvement primarily the first three digits of each hand, and this is a, uh, uh, we'll come back to this patient later, but fingertip dermatitis is allergic contact dermatitis until proven otherwise. I attribute this to my mentor, Franz Doors. Um, and uh, this, uh, she also, this patient also has involvement of the, um, the nail, the uh, hyponychium of the nail, uh, and she had thickened hyponychia, and actually she was initially referred to the nail specialist in our division who then uh, thought, realized this is probably not a nail disorder and sent her my way. Um, you also want to look at uh, where does it spread beyond? Does it go onto the arms or other parts of the body? And many of you probably have good examples of this in your experience and your memory. Uh, but this, here it is. This is sort of spreading beyond where this glove was, and this was a patient that was sent, uh, was suspected to be allergic to latex gloves, and this was back in the 1990s during the P90 
peak of the latex epidemic. Um, but then, uh, you know, that's, that's how it looks uh, next to the gloves. It's sort of some, uh, some uh, hint that the, it goes beyond the gloves, although they could maybe being stretch, could be stretched that far up on the, or reach that far up on the forearm. But then you look at this, and you may have some skip areas under glove dermatitis, but this really looked uh, like there were really some skip areas. Areas were just, there was, you would expect there, there to be dermatitis, and actually this kind of suggested that something was uh, seeping down underneath the gloves, and this is what I call a seepage pattern. And actually, this, uh, this patient turned out to be uh, alert, allergic to these fragrances in the, the massage cream she was using. She's a, an RN who works as a massage therapist on cancer patients, and uh, she, uh, it turned out she was not allergic to the gloves at all, and she was allergic to these massage creams and the fragrances in the creams, and so and she uh, changed to some different uh, uh, massage creams and oils, and this all went away. And I hear from time to time from her dermatologist that she's doing very well and is very grateful. So, uh, and this is another uh, example. This is back to the machinist that I first showed you. Uh, he has this dermatitis on the dorsal aspects of the hand, and also web space involvement, and that. And that usually implies, in in the experience of many experts, some component of irritant contact dermatitis. It may not be the whole story, but it, probably uh, some component of irritant contact dermatitis is present. This is another variant of hand dermatitis. Yeah, this, this patient has fingertip dermatitis, but it's a different pattern than what I showed you previously that's, that's not really hyperkeratotic, uh, and that it's somewhat itchy. This is what's called the dry palmar eczema pattern, this sort of thinned out, glazed looking skin. And you can see the fingertips are sort of that glazed uh, skin and, and fine little uh, fissures there. This was a nurse that works on the inpatient floor and uh, turned out she, she did have latex allergy, but even she, after the latex gloves were removed from her uh, exposure, uh, she continued to have this pattern of hand dermatitis. She is, at is atopic. And uh, basically, for these people, uh, petrolatum, in my experience, works better than topical corticosteroids. I will tell them, yes, you can use topical corticosteroids. I'll give, give you all you want as far as that goes. Most of them discover that uh, the topical corticosteroids really don't help that much, and they thin out the skin and make them more susceptible to fissuring, so most of them wind up carrying uh, petrolatum uh, and uh, using that frequently. And, uh, and this lady still uh, comes up to me from time to time and shows me the dermatitis is sort of the bane of my existence. Uh, <laughs> have uh, people like this that you can't cure, but she manages to get by with it. This is another, uh, another uh, example. This sort of, many of you might kind of have an idea what this might be. This was an, a lab research assistant, again, during the 1990s, the peak of the latex allergy era, sent uh, 
came through it from occupational medicine clinic, was suspected glove allergy, and he really didn't itch very much, and, and that's one of the, the uh, things to, I hope you take away, is itching is a hallmark of allergic contact dermatitis, and often the atopics and, and who have chronic irritant contact dermatitis will itch a lot as well. Um, and he has these, as you can see, these kind of, he really didn't itch very much. It just sort of cracks, it kind of burns. And you ask them, does it itch? And they, if they have to think for, for uh, 45 seconds or something, that's not itching. Uh, that's, um, and uh, so he, you see these kind of well-demarcated plaques with this sort of whitish scale on them and this, uh, these kind of scalloped borders and uh, and several digits, and uh, then you, you do the complete skin exam, and he had some pits in his nail uh, plates and this little teeny plaque on his elbows, and, and so, uh, you know, made me wonder about psoriasis. I didn't label him as having psoriasis because I, I wouldn't want to uh, have that on someone's insurance records if you weren't absolutely sure that they had psoriasis, but this is psoriasiform hand dermatitis, another bane of my existence because there's really not a whole lot you can do about it other than tell the patient to try to learn to live with it, although it sometimes does respond to topical retinoids or even systemic retinoids if it's really bad. I threw this in as well, I thought I'd leave this in as well just because uh, they sometimes these patients get sent to you, oh, it has really bad dermatitis, and, you know, and actually uh, Fran Storrs, my mentor, uh, told me of a patient that was actually Trent referred from, to her from Alaska to Portland and sent down. Uh, uh, so you want to look at, uh, and I give this uh, talk similar to this to occupational medicine fellows every year, and so I have this in and as an example to them. So this patient comes in with this kind of another hand dermatitis, and it's this kind of scale, and it uh, doesn't really itch, though it kind of burns and cracks, and then you, you got to do the complete skin exam, and then, well, look at that, shazam, you know, there's a rash on the feet as well, and, and, you know, half the time these people tell you, well, I don't have anything on my feet. Why do you want to look at my feet? And, and uh, I usually convince them to, uh, we really need to see your feet today, and uh, I think Alex Fisher, the, uh, one of the fathers of modern American contact dermatitis used to say there, there's no extra charge for looking at your feet and that would usually get them, they sense a bargain then and they'd take their shoes off and um, and this is just two foot one hand disease and a lot of the, um, the patients, uh, uh, a lot of the patients in occupational medicine clinic uh, that I used to see uh, actually have this going on as well so that may be kind of a concurrent condition and you have to factor that in, you should be aware of it. So I left that in. Same deal here, you look around uh, and you'll find more uh, this is tinea corporis, and you know how to do a KOH, hopefully, and confirm that. Another uh, exam finding honey-colored crusts and fissures, and this, uh, this is back to the machinist, and I have a very low threshold, a very uh, high index of suspicion for Staph aureus superinfection, and I get a lot of benefit, uh, my patients get a lot of benefit out of, I think, out of uh, treating Staph aureus superinfection. So, 
you swab for bacterial culture and sensitivities, and in a big medical center setting where a lot of us may be taking care of uh, the same patient, I like to document the infection by formally doing a culture and getting a report generated so that everyone is really aware of what's going on that really is an issue and they don't just say, oh, they don't really, they don't look infected and, and I, I hear that a lot and anytime you see a fissure, that's a foothold for Staph aureus and I think you should, someone who has severe hand dermatitis especially should have a, a, a high index of suspicion for it. Um, Differential diagnosis or mimickers of contact dermatitis. This is just a partial list. I left a few blanks at the end. Some of you can maybe fill in some of your own uh, examples of that, or maybe some of you will, will uh, discover uh, some of your own along the way. So that's, uh, you have to consider other things as well. Uh, on the patch testing, how do we do this? And as many of you know, uh, most of you know, there are samples of mostly standardized antigens, uh, and you can also that are, or you can test actual materials themselves. And that's uh, the picture there shows a piece of pieces of gloves being tested as well. Um, you apply them for usually two days, although there's some evidence that one day application is probably sufficient. Most of us still, I think, do them for, apply them for two days. And you do readings at uh, two days and then three to seven days, and a, a, the second reading is the most important reading. You really need to do three to seven days after patch application. And then, as you know, a positive patch test reproduces uh, you're eliciting allergic contact dermatitis at that site. And some of, some of the patients I actually have to educate about that because as you know, some of the patch tests are, uh, the antigens have different colors to them like paraphenylene diamine and the patient will wonder, is that a positive patch test? Or they'll see a blue one or a blue dye or something and wonder, is that a positive? And you have to educate them, no, you you're looking for a little raised blistered area that, that's red and itchy. And, and there are different chambers or systems, fin chambers, IQ ultra chambers, allergies chambers. The, the uh, content I did not include in your handout materials are the suppliers of some of the allergens from Canada. And I, I should include my only disclaimer statement that some of the antigens I patch test with are not FDA approved. Um, but, and there are right now three sources of commercially available patch test antigens beyond the True Test series, which is the only FDA approved uh, patch test in the US. Uh, and those are Chemotechnique in Sweden, and that's marketed by Dormer Labs in Canada. And then Allergies is also, I believe, in Calgary, uh, uh, Alberta, and then Trolab, uh, which is uh, made in Germany and marketed through a, a firm, I believe, in Canada as well. I think you can find these online. It is legal to import these for your own patients. Uh, it's basically, it's don't ask, don't tell. The FDA is sort of aware that it's going on. 
Uh, if you're going to start ordering these, though, I would advise you, my experience is don't go order them through the pharmacy. If you're in a large medical center, you will get the ire of those people. Uh, they will get very upset because some of these, these labs are, these suppliers from Canada are on the same uh, FDA watch list as the pharmacies that are selling mail order uh, prescription medications from Canada. So the FDA's computer system, if you call, if the pharmacy services calls up the FDA and says, uh, you know, what about dormer laboratories? And oh, they're yeah, they're on our watch list for selling, uh, you know, illegal antigens or maybe importing illegal antigens into Canada. And and uh, I got myself into some hot water with the, with the pharmacy, found out about it a year or so ago, and thought they were going to try to shut me down, but afterwards I decided just to ignore them, and they sort of went away, so... Uh, um, but, but it did, I, I did gather some information and kind of go through this, and I have had, probably 15 years ago, we had U.S. Customs called up and asked, uh, what kind of doctor is Dr. Welch, and uh, what are the, you know, we need to figure out what these funny little syringes of, of stuff are, and I think they're now more, uh, you know, they, they are customs, at least at the Canadian border, seems more aware of what these are, and they let them through, and the uh, people that uh, some of the suppliers are aware if the customs holds them up or sends them back or anything like that. So right now they're letting them in. It's just, it's illegal to, for you though to turn around and sell them to distribute them to somewhere else. That's, that's when you really get into hot water. Uh, but if you do have problems, the suppliers of these uh, of these antigens are very helpful and, and you can, they are a wonderful resource. So that's more than you, probably more than you need to know, but I thought I would go through that a little bit. Uh, so the patch testing procedure, uh, there are various series, like the true test I think is now about up to 34 or so patch tests. They just approved another handful of them in February of this year. and. Um, so it's, it's a, I think, a reasonable uh, screening patch test series to do, and, and I encourage uh, referring dermatologists to do it, and, uh, because it's sometimes it's very helpful. Um, then there are other larger series you can order from uh, these suppliers, and it sometimes gets down to just what you uh, are interested in testing to, or, and, and that's what my series now is about 112 patch tests, and I'm probably going to expand it to probably up to 115 or so uh, shortly. Uh, you then add to those, uh, I add what I call supplemental series or specialized series, and some of those are shown there, acrylates, and then bakery, corticosteroids, uh, uh, and, and don't spend too much time reading this stuff uh, at, at any one sitting. It, it kind of makes you nauseated after a, uh, I can only take small doses of it. Uh, but you can get an idea of, of uh, how, how involved it can get. Uh, this is also a wonderful resource to Groot patch testing and at the most of the book, um, 
he, they go into all of the different recommended concentrations for patch testing, all sorts of different chemicals. You can have a compounding pharmacist make a lot of these up for you if you're, uh, if you, and that's what most uh, dermatologists do. I actually weigh a lot of them out myself. Um, and at the back of the book are these wonderful tables on just how to patch test both categories of chemicals such as epoxies or acrylates or uh, as well as and then table four shows products. So say they bring in adhesive tape or nail polish or uh, paint from home or epoxy cement from work. How do you dilute that? And it's very important to actually test to the stuff that they're using, especially if you get negative patch tests. Uh, to begin with, and I'll show you some examples of that later on. Uh, personal care products, pre pre prescription topicals, if they're, if they're approved to be left on the skin, you can pretty much patch test them uh, as is, meaning at, the, at the, the use concentration. If it's a shampoo or a soap or a uh, then you dilute it, and usually 2% aqueous, 5% aqueous. Sometimes if I'm really uh, uh, in an in a, uh, adventuresome mood, I'll test it at the soaps at uh, 10%. And uh, you, you have to be careful, though. You can burn a hole in someone's skin. Uh, basically, you can give them a pretty bad case of irritant contact dermatitis, although usually it's it's not symptomatic and the patient's unaware of uh, that it's even going on. And I sometimes take these pass tests off and look at them. There's some big bulla there and I'm horrified as to what I've done to this poor person. And then they come back a few days later and it's completely resolved. And, and uh, so uh, you, you can uh, get away with it, but a lot of times the, uh, with uh, irritants, but you, you should be careful. And certainly with the strong allergic sensitizers, you want to be very careful about testing those, such as the, some of the methacrylates or acrylates. Uh, you need to make sure and dilute those. Um, objects such as fabrics, glove pieces, pieces of shoes, you can test as is, and you I usually soak them in water for about 10 minutes after, prior to application and put them on paper as well. You can, you can uh, make a big stack of paper. If they think they're allergic to paper, then yeah, we'll test you to the paper and you make a, a good, good size, quarter inch thick stack of it, soak it, get it nice wet in water and put it on. And then you cover these with one or two layers of, of uh, paper tape. Then when they come back, you want to remove the patch tests at day two. You want to check for the occlusion, and I think you can see in that picture, you, you can see the little indentations there in the skin. You want to make sure that the, the patch tests are not peeling off. Some of these people, uh, as you know, uh, sometimes the patches come off or they uh, go and do uh, some activity that gets them, uh, and, and I'm amazed at what some of these people ask if they can do. Uh, can I go to my Zumba class? Uh, uh, can and uh, you know we really have to tell them uh, no. You, you know, lay off on the bench press for a couple of days while you're doing this. Uh, um, so we got no hot yoga. That's another one. That's a real big fad right now. And, and we actually 
uh, have this in our instructions. So, and we use uh, surgical markers to mark the, uh, the sites. Uh, you can also use a, a fluorescent highlighter. We like the surgical markers just because the patient can then take a shower if they have someone to remark their back. Um, with the highlighters, they pretty much need to keep their back dry. So, and you, then you, you need to have them come back and do that second reading beyond 48 hours. You can do 72 hours, 96 hours, so like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday is a very good time course. Or a, we do right now Tuesday, Thursday, and then the following Tuesday, so we have a seven-day reading. And then you, there's appearance scoring and the original ICDRG guidelines are 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus for positives and uh, so, and this one would be probably a two plus erythema in duration. I think it's spreading a little bit and getting some papulovesicles there. That's tixoportopivillate, which is a, a, a screening agent for a corticosteroid age, uh, allergy. And that, it's an interesting antigen in, in itself in that I don't think it's commercially sold in the US. It's a, a nasal corticosteroid in Europe. And when they were doing clinical trials of it, um, they started noticing that a, a lot of the patients had, or not a lot, but a set enough to, to get their attention had allergic contact dermatitis due to it. And it turned out that these, uh, some of these patients were atopics who had had atopic dermatitis and had used prednisone before. And so it has been discovered as a very useful uh, screening patch test for corticosteroid allergy in the structural group A, which is the, or the oral forms and hydrocortisone. This is another one. I wanted to find a, a macular erythema, but I usually don't take pictures of those because they're just really not, they're kind of boring. And, and I, I took a picture of one recently to show here, but it was, I didn't have the memory card in my camera, so it was only stored in the camera's internal memory. And then when I went to download it last night, I. I realized what I had done, so I put this one in instead. This is a good whopping two to three plus, and I don't know if you can appreciate this picture. It's, uh, but the plaque there is spreading well beyond the the uh, central uh, vesicles there in the in the square. So I would probably score that as a three plus. I think two to two plus to three plus. The residents sometimes accuse me of being like the French judge in the figure skating in the 2002. <laughs> Uh, Winter Olympics, so that I downscore everything, and the residents want to upscore it because they're all excited, and so they, they uh, uh, kind of, oh, it's a two plus, and and I'll come in and say, no, it's a one, you know, it's a one plus, but it really doesn't matter. It means it's allergic, and that's really the important thing. This, I think, you can guess what that one is. Uh, I would score that as a three plus, and. Uh, Potential problems with patch testing, and, and uh, if someone has recent generalized dermatitis, you want to be very careful about uh, patch testing them. You need to cool down their dermatitis, or you put these on, and then they come back, and you're going to have uh, chances are you're going to flare up the dermatitis just from the irritation from the tape, as well as if they really have some relevant positives, you may uh, uh, cause the dermatitis to flare up as well. Um, recent sun exposure, just saw a lady yesterday who had 
been to Belize uh, last week and had a nice sunburn on her back, so we're not going to be patch testing her anytime soon. We'll put that off for a few weeks, and I think most of us like to wait probably three or four weeks after uh, sun exposure or uh, if they're getting ultraviolet light treatment on their back, try to have them uh, shield the trunk at least uh, for two to four weeks pr prior to patch testing. I have them hold the topical steroids on the back probably uh, usually 48 to 72 hours before uh, some, some evidence that you could use them right up and, until the time you do the patch testing. Uh, inadequate occlusion, in with hairy backs, you need to shave the, the hair off. Uh, failure to perform the readings beyond day two, and I touched on this before, failure to test uh, personal, their personal products or the products from the workplace. And then a lot of the problems I see are um, they get positive patch tests, but then they're not investigated adequately. And, and I, um, or their, the labels and their personal care products are not read carefully enough. And sometimes this is a lot of work. And actually, if you get the positive patch test, results, uh, that a lot of times is when your work is just beginning. It's not the end of it at all. And, and so I would encourage you to, to see these people back frequently and, and until you can, can get them uh, uh, stabilized and find out more about what they're using. Sometimes they, they forget to bring their things in and, and you have to um, encourage them to gather their things up and then bring them in the next appointment. I also like to do a lot of patient education. I give them a lot of handouts. I make copies of the handouts. I send those to the referring physicians and, and so that they can then see what was done, see what, uh, what went on at our appointment and reinforce various things that we taught the patient. Moving on, patch testing on immunosuppression. This comes up a lot, especially with the patients I get sent from UW Medical Center. Um, can you patch test people on cyclosporin or uh, mycophenolate or prednisone? In general, you can, you can. I try to avoid doing it. A lot of it depends on what mood I'm in. And if I'm sick of patch testing people on immunosuppression um, and I've been through a run of those lately, uh, then I will try to get the docs to get the doses lowered. Now, you have someone who's had a solid organ transplant, you know, that's really not an option. Um, you should go ahead and do the patch testing. And this is a lady who was on, had terrible hand dermatitis, was on mycophenolate mofetil, one and a half grams, two times a day. And we, she had whopping positive patch tests to uh, several uh, methyl methacrylate, HEMA, which is 2-hydroxyethyl methacrylate, which is, and that, was used in her artificial nails, and she had been using, uh, had, just, had just figured out that she was allergic to artificial nails and had stopped using those maybe the month before. Uh, GTMG is glyceryl monothioglycolate, which is a hair perming agent, which she had, was no longer using, and then PCMX is chloroxylenol, which is antimicrobial. That's used in some surgical scrubs. 
So in general, I try to get these people to the lowest dose of immunosuppression. I try to switch them to so-called safe products such as uh, fragrance-free shampoos and, and uh, soaps and, and hair conditioners and that sort of thing um, and, and try to get them to the lowest dose of prednisone. Um, but you can patch test people on suprednisone uh, up to 20 milligrams a day of prednisone. So this back to this patient with the fingertip dermatitis. This is a case uh, I saw, one of the first cases I saw, a 47-year-old woman who is a, works as a dental technician making dental restorations um, and had this eight-month history, so 47 years old, uh, previously healthy, no prior history of atopic uh, dermatitis, pruritic eruption, both hands, uh, really even timovate, uh, clobetasol ointment under occlusion with gloves was not really having much of an effect on it, but when given a, a course of high-dose prednisone, got, had marked temporary improvement with that, which really suggested uh, allergic contact dermatitis. Dental workers are a fascinating uh, but complicated group of patients. Uh, irritants, they do a lot of hand washing. Um, the gloves, uh, both uh, the curing agents uh, in the, like mercapto, carbamates, uh, thioram uh, in the gloves as uh, cause the delayed type allergy as well as natural rubber latex allergy, although that's less uh, prevalent now than I think that most uh, centers have switched to either vinyl or nitrile gloves. Resins such as acrylates, epoxy, uh, which are used in the dental restorations and the cements, and then finally disinfectants such as glutaraldehyde. And so she has this fingertip dermatitis, had some fissuring as well, very suspicious. Uh, really not much of a, not as much dermatitis on the rest of the hand. This is more of glove-associated dermatitis, uh, the differential diagnosis, irritant, allergic, latex allergy, um, and endogenous atopic hand dermatitis. And they can have all of those going on, so you, and you have to sort all of that out. And, um, a little bit about latex allergy. This is uh, uh, type 1 allergy, not allergic contact dermatitis, but type 1 IgE-mediated immediate hypersensitivity. This is a classic photograph from Finland. Um, may manifest if they keep getting hives from exposure to latex gloves, it can, they can, and they're atopic, they can then eventually get atopic hand dermatitis and get aggravated and it can manifest and become eczematous dermatitis uh, or this can occur concurrently with atopic hand dermatitis or uh, allergic contact dermatitis. You want to ask about the types of the brands of gloves. Some of these people will tell you, well, I can't wear those gloves. And you say, why? And you have to jar their memory sometimes and they, I can't wear those. And, and what happens, and, I, and a lot of times they don't, it's such, I think, such a noxious experience that they try to blot it out of their memory. They have this kind of reflex aversion to, uh, and, it's, and usually the symptom is they, they have immediate onset of inching and it's within minutes to, uh, of exposure or say they wear gloves for 30 minutes or so, they take the gloves off and they're all broken out like uh, in the photograph, and so it's, it's worthwhile to t 
tease out that time course. When does it start? Is it the next day or is it right then? And, and so on. Diagnostic testing, you can do a, an ELISA or, or a, uh, which is a blood test and they uh, assay for latex specific IgE. Um, and that's how we do, that's what you, we start with. It's uh, simple, it's uh, fairly inexpensive. Uh, and it's very safe other than the risk of the needle stick for the blood draw. Uh, you're not putting the patient at risk for exposure to latex protein. If that's negative, then uh, you can go on and do a wear test and you have them wet their hands. You then apply the suspected glove uh, to one finger. You do not want to test them to a whole glove. You can, you can give someone anaphylaxis if they are latex allergic. You also want to test to uh, other several different gloves, and actually the occupational patients will ha we have a little puppet box set up. It's just basically a cardboard box with some holes in it. So, and they stick their hand in it, and then you put the glove pieces on on the other side, and they're it's double blinded. And then so I'll have the uh, medical assistant or nurse put the little glove pieces on, and then take them off, and then I don't know which glove piece was on which finger and then I come in and read it and so and that sort of increases the validity of it as far as uh, making a legal case for whether they're allergic to something or not and then finally prick skin testing which we don't do very much I usually uh, support our local allergist community and and send them to an allergist to do that that's about 99 percent uh, sensitive so that's about all I'll say about latex allergy. Uh, this, and this patient wound up being allergic to glutaraldehyde. Um, and, and to summarize her patch test results, she had erythema induration, a, a good one plus reaction to glutaraldehyde at 96 hours. Uh, she was entirely negative to the Mercapto, uh, Thioram, Carba mix, black rubber mix, but we also tested pieces of her latex rubber gloves and she was positive to all three of those. That tells you that she's allergic to something in those latex gloves. That's about all you can say. Uh, there are up to 200 different chemical compounds used in some of these uh, rubber glove uh, mixes. So uh, she was allergic to those and, and got some different gloves and changed over to a chlorine-based sterilization disinfectant system and got all better and uh, was able to go back to work. Glutaraldehyde is a very interesting antigen. We use it in dermatology, as some of you may know, uh, to treat hyperhidrosis, warts, um, and it's really not much of a sensitizer in, in uh, you put it on the feet. It's, I guess, because the skin is so thick. Uh, that uh, most people don't get allergic to it. It's used a lot in cold sterilization of endoscopes and uh, it's, it's out there. Um, has been used as a preservative before, uh, tissue fixative in electron microscopy. So and this is uh, the cold sterilization Cytex, and that's uh, glutaraldehyde. So those are some risk groups for glutaraldehyde allergy. Uh, physicians, surgeons can get it, medical and dental personnel. And it has been reported in automotive technicians uh, early, mid-1990s with some of these waterless hand cleansers, although uh, I think it's been taken out of those. 
Finally, if you're interested, Criteria for Occupational Causation, this is a wonderful article that's referenced uh, by Toby Mathias. It's uh, 1989, but it's still very good, and, and uh, he proposes these criteria, and if four or more of these things are positive, then that suggests a greater than 50% uh, chance of occupational causation. That's about all I'll say uh, you can about occupational causation. Treatment on the treatment of uh, allergic contact dermatitis, the primary treatment is avoidance, uh, and you want to get them away from the antigen, and that depends on what kind of antigen it is and what the characteristics are, and that's a lot of what makes occupational uh, skin diseases interesting is that you get familiar with the manufacturing processes and and uh, how they come in contact with these things, and you have to kind of go into each uh, each one. Um, systemic treatment for acute allergic contact dermatitis, so corticosteroids up to, say, uh, one milligram per kilogram per day, uh, and then cyclosporin, topical corticosteroids, uh, triamcinolone ointment. So for our, our man with the uh, poison oak, uh, we gave him uh, high-dose prednisone, about one milligram per kilogram per day, and you want to taper that over two to three weeks. If you stop it before then, a lot of times they will rebound. Uh, with autoexaminization, which is when it starts spreading around, you can use lower doses of that. Um, on to a few cases. Um, this was a cardiac surgeon who had a glove-related dermatitis. We worked him up a couple of years ago. He turned out to be allergic to carbon mix and to the synthetic polyisoprene gloves, which they now use as a substitute for latex gloves, and the past test of the actual gloves themselves were uh, positive. Previously, thiorams have been the most common cause of glove dermatitis, but that may be changing, uh, and that's a, there's a reference to that uh, at the bottom here. There's some more case examples. This is a little 18-month-old uh, girl, had terrible diaper dermatitis, had some strong positive patch tests, and nickel fragrance mix and Boudreaux's butt paste, which is at the bottom there, bottom right. And the parents had not suspected the Boudreaux's butt paste at all. They thought it was actually helping, and so this was very useful in her case. You then need to go on and, and educate the patient about fragrances and these ingredients uh, in fragrances. Benzyl alcohol can be related to fragrance, and uh, benzyl alcohol is in triamcinolone cream, and so it, you have to be careful about, uh, and that's one of the reasons I don't like creams as much as ointments, um, and uh, half my job is just changing people over to uh, ointments from creams. Um, I want to get this in before I uh, go further. This is contact photodermatitis. This is non-immunologic. This is phototoxic contact dermatitis. It's basically just a bad sunburn when they get a plant uh, sorolin from plants on their skin and then get some sun exposure. And this was a, uh, I believe, a greengrocer from a supermarket came into clinic, general dermatology clinic at Harborview and had this sort of blister, hyperpigmented with this sort of grayish uh, uh, red uh, erythema uh, blistering and, uh, and it, they don't really itch, it kind of burns, it starts the next day. You also see this in people uh, 
uh, I say leisure in the handout. That means uh, squeezing uh, limes from adult beverages and, um, and getting those on their finger. Uh, and then that's known as Club Med dermatitis when they come back from the Caribbean or the tropics and uh, broken out with this. Uh, and we see this from time to time and we usually educate the patient about it and then they realize, oh yeah, I, we squeezed some limes the first day we were there uh, and so on. So I think I'll stop there. I, I uh, have any, if, see if you have any questions. And if not, I can, uh, these are the plants. Uh, oh, okay. Is the mic on? Uh, Hello. There we go. Uh, did you mention stopping antihistamines prior to patch testing? Did you mention stopping antihistamines prior to patch tests? Uh, no, I didn't. No, that's a good question. Um, I usually don't, uh, from a theoretical standpoint, I think uh, maybe uh, antihistamines suppress, uh, they might suppress the immune response theoretically. Um, usually I don't have patients stop them. Uh, and, uh, in, Except if I suspect that, um, that they have contact, immunologic contact or urticaria and I want to look for that, then some of those people I will tell them uh, to stop antihistamines three days or four days ahead of time because you can pick up immunologic contact or urticaria to fragrances, cinnamic aldehyde, balsam of Peru, but otherwise I, I usually don't, especially if they're atopic have bad uh, itching, I will tell them that they can go ahead and use antihistamines. Thank you. Um, do you have any preferences regarding aquaphor use versus petrolatum? Um, I, I like petrolatum. It's less expensive. Uh, aquaphor has lanolin in it. The other problem with aquaphor is there's several different variations of aquaphor. There's aquaphor healing ointment and and some of those have botanicals in them. I think, I think one of the Aquaphor products has uh, bisabolol in it, which is a botanical that does have some medicinal pro uh, properties, but it's related to fragrances, and some people get allergic to that, especially that's been reported in children. So um, I tend to prefer um, uh, petrolatum, but uh, the pediatricians are always pushing the aquaphor, and, and uh, if, the, if the patient's doing fine on aquaphor, I leave them alone, and, and, or if they want to use the aquaphor uh, and don't like petrolatum, like the feel of it, then, uh, and they're not allergic to it on patch testing, then, then uh, and they want to spend the money because it's about three times as expensive as petrolatum, then fine, I'll let them use it. So it's sort of an individual, uh, I approach it to, on an individual basis. I have a couple questions. Um, first, have you ever had anybody uh, allergic to the scan pore tape from the true test, or is it mostly just irritant? Uh, yeah, that's another good question. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a real case of allergy from that. Um, and there is, there are, is evidence that most of the patients thought to be allergic to tape, it's really probably irritant contact dermatitis. And actually we will sometimes patch test those people to extensive uh, adhesives, plastics and glues, plus our 
uh, screening series, and then we we get uh, and it's real easy, and it's you just go and open up the cabinet, and you get every band aid you can find, and you patch test them to it. See if you can reproduce it, uh, and you usually can't. And and uh, and we have like a, a little tackle box full of. Uh, all kinds of brands of tape and and uh, stary strips and uh, and uh, band aids and and uh, we put all those on them and usually we cannot reproduce it and I think my hypothesis is that a lot of the patients who break out get these bad tape reactions are uh, they are uh, it's when they're hospitalized and they're seriously ill and they may have a myocardial infarction or uh, and their skin is physiologically stressed and it's much more susceptible to irritation then and uh, so most of them I think are um, are irritant contact dermatitis. What we will do in clinic is we will uh, if they think they're allergic to paper tape we will and the nurse actually will put some uh, let's, you know, we say this is a special hypoallergenic tape from Sweden, and that seems to kind of uh, stir up, you know, make it okay. And uh, even though I think 3M Micropore is probably just as good, just as safe, and, uh, and then we put it on their uh, little test piece of it on their arm and show that, and have them wear it for 20 minutes or so and show them that it really is not causing any problems, and they usually agree to go along with it at that point. Um, also, I've had a lot of um, eye contact dermatitis patients, or eye irritation dermatitis, and the true test usually comes back negative for the irritation around the eyes. Um, is there anything else you could do besides sending to um, an allergist with like a cosmetic profile to help with the eyelid irritation dermatitis patients? Uh, I think switch to the safe shampoo, uh, safe uh, fragrance-free shampoos such as Free and Clear uh, or uh, uh, the uh, one by one of our sponsors uh, next door, uh, DHS Clear, that's another one. Safe shampoos and hair conditioners, I usually uh, default have them switch to that. Um, and then it's uh, nickel, you want to investigate that. Uh, and then remember, patch testing is not 100% sensitive. You may be missing uh, things. Uh, Tacrolimus ointment is a wonderful treatment for if they just have atopic eyelid dermatitis. Um, I think later on here I have, uh, yeah, nickel allergy. This is uh, um, another example, most common allergen in North America, and this was a, a patient who had bilateral eyelid dermatitis and had a positive dimethylglyoxime test to the, uh, the eyelash curlers. Uh, and I have a little box that has uh, eyelash curlers and things that patients have given me, tweezers, and uh, after they, we do the dimethylglyoxime test and show that it has nickel, and if they're allergic to nickel, they usually give me the uh, implement, so I have a little collection of them. Um, and this is another, the other one is uh, the uh, a man who had dermatitis uh, related to nickel on his belt buckle. Uh, so that's another thing to remember. Uh, so some of them, you know, some of them are difficult. The tacrolimus is, uh, has been a real, uh, a big help in the uh, eyelid dermatitis, though. 
I just need to understand a little bit more in regards to the utilization of patch testing. I use the true test, but um, you know, in regard in regards to allergic contact versus irritant contact dermatitis, are you truly just picking up all allergies, or is there like on the delayed reading, the seven-day reading, or is that like an irritant? Uh, just trying to pick those two diagnoses apart. Okay, um, so I guess your question is, is it how, is, you may be asking how useful is patch testing for, for diagnosing irritant contact dermatitis? Yes, uh, that, that's okay. part. Um, it's not standardized for irritant contact dermatitis, although, um, so the clinical diagnosis of irritant contact dermatitis, I think, is a kind of a diagnosis of based on the history, the physical exam, and exclusion uh, based on the patch test results. Uh, but then, in general, some patients get irritated from the patch tests, and you can kind of surmise that they're atopic, or, uh, and, and I'll notice that a lot of them get irritated from uh, fragrance mix, for instance. Uh, what's the other big carba mix uh, uh, is another big one. Those usually go away between the day two and the, the uh, later reading. So uh, other than that, you just say they're susceptible to that maybe in general they seem susceptible to irritation, but then you usually have other clues of that as well. So that's about all you can say. Thank you, Dr. Welch.